Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. Always sticking with the German intros lately. All right, bonjour. There we Comment go. Let's, uh, let's be more inclusive. Also in studio, we've got frequent contributor and strategic analyst, Ross Feingold. Good evening. Also have with us, for the first time in a while, Jason Pan of the Taipei Times. Jason, good to have you back. Uh, Jason Pan here. We're hitting all the major languages. And by phone, our man in Taichung, ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent, Donovan Smith. Donovan, good to have you too. Good evening. On the show today, the crowded KMT chairmanship race will come to a close tomorrow when the party election takes place. And we'll get to meet the new face of Taiwan's top opposition party. Then the Council of Grand Justices is delivering a ruling next Wednesday that could, potentially maybe, pave the way for the legalization of same-sex marriage in Taiwan. We'll give a preview of that as well, uh, along with maybe another social issue that uh, Gavin has in mind. We'll see how the show goes. Then in the second half, as China unveils its One Belt, One Road trade and development project, questions emerge about Taiwan's own Go South policy. Will Taiwan's efforts to woo regional trade partners be crushed by China's trillion-dollar project of the century? We discuss. And then sticking with cross-strait stickiness, the Taipei Universiad Games are coming up in August. But it's not all just fun and games. With questions about Taiwan's national flags and China's decision not to participate in team events, nationalism is making an appearance as well. And then we'll close out the show taking a look at the legacy of legendary Taiwanese entertainer Zhu Geliang, who passed away earlier this week. So a whole lot to cover today, but uh, first, before we get to any of that, we're going to start with Wanna Cry, the ransomware attack that made about 200,000 computer users in 150 countries around the world Wanna Cry over the past week or so. Every news agency in the world has made some version of that joke over the past seven days, so I figured we should as well. Uh, This massive international hacking attack hit Taiwan as well, Gavin. It did. We had some rather contradictory numbers, though. The the day after it hit, we had two days after it hit, Thai Power came out and said that 770 of its computers were affected. We had a hospital in Sansha District in New Taipei saying one of its computers was affected. And we had about 10 schools who said a complete... Of the 10 schools combined, apparently 59 computers were affected at those 10 schools. Now, several days later, the National Security Bureau came out and said that a total of 185 computers island-wide were infected by the WannaCry ransom virus. And the NSB broke it down at 116 computers computers at Thai Power and 68 other computers at 13 schools. There was also apparently a trading company, I believe the trading company was in Taichung, hmm. who got infected by the virus and they reported it to the police and paid the ransom. So, okay, so some number of computers in Taiwan were but, affected. Of course, the most interesting story was apparently people in Taiwan weren't wealthy enough to pay the ransom. That was a great one. That real was- quick, real quick, before we hit that, let's just explain to our listeners who have not been following this story. The basic idea here is... 
you click on some link in an email because you're not the brightest bulb in the box. Box? Yeah, that's where bulbs go. Not the brightest bulb in the box. Your computer gets infected, and uh, this uh, virus basically locks your computer, locks the data, and you need to pay $300, I think it was. $300 US dollars in Bitcoin in within Bitcoin, three days. Bitcoin within three days. But then if you didn't pay it in three days, it went out to about $600 US dollars, and then $900 US dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until the people that have the virus went burp, and they erased your hard drive. Right. So that message was sent to one individual in Taiwan, and his response, Gavin... His response was quite funny. His response was basically, I can't pay it because I don't have any money. I only make $400 a month. That's what he said. Anyway, the creators of the WannaCry ransomware virus said that they're sorry. They apologized. Direct, they directly responded to this one individual they, they dude. Did. And they said they realized that their campaign was a total failure, and that's a quote, in Taiwan, and they will decrypt the data of some affected Taiwanese users free of charge. And apparently, they attributed the reason for the failure to having overestimated the income of the Taiwanese. <sighs> All right, so it's uh, it was a pretty widespread attack, uh, a lot of interesting news, a very revealing bit of news that we just heard right there uh, that Gavin told us. But uh, seeing as none of us are cybersecurity experts, I decided uh, that it would be best to get a guy who is on the phone. So earlier this week, I spoke to a guy from the Taiwan National Computer Emergency Response Team. That is a government response center that coordinates Taiwan's response to cybersecurity threats. Basically, you know, there's a lot of different groups, whether in business or government or other uh, otherwise, that need to respond to cybersecurity threats. This group ties to coordinate between all of them. Uh, I spoke to their director, Larry Wu, about all this. Uh, here is what he had to tell me. Director Wu, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. So, so far this week, according to reports, it, it, it looks like only a few hundred computers have been infected with this virus. So, not a very widespread impact that this virus has had on Taiwan. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, the, the, the consequences. Has there been any real damage to Taiwan and its computer infrastructure uh, because of this virus? Uh, as I know, the water ransomware hit computers of Taiwan power company and several schools and some private organizations and hospitals. However, uh, the attack only attacks very few government agencies. The reason the government agencies suffer really minor damages are because we have banned the use of SMB. SMB stands for Server Massive Block Protocol in government network environment long time ago. In addition, the Taiwan government has implemented TCP, the government compilation baseline, which includes the network security policies and the update system patches regularly. Also, we have done several preemptive procedures over the last weekend. So the Taiwan government agency were able to sustain these massive attacks. But why was hit Taiwan so hard compared to other countries. In my personal opinion, the reason why Taiwan was hit so hard compared to other countries are we are higher percentage people using the computers and with relative fast and large internet bandwidth compared to other countries. So we have more system and bandwidth for the ransomware to infect and spread. And also the general public still does not have the proper 
cybersecurity awareness, we will continue to raise the level of the cybersecurity across the nation. For example, many private companies are still using the Windows XP operating system, which Microsoft has stopped update support long time ago. Moreover, most people do not check for system updates regularly. Some even ignore update notice. So that's the reason why. Mm. So it sounds like you're saying that Taiwan has already done a lot of work uh, to prepare for these sorts of attacks. What what other work do you think might be necessary in the future as this sort of cyber attack becomes more common? Mm, as I mentioned before, I have done several preemptive procedures to mitigate potential damage for government agency. Uh, so it, it was very fortunate that the attack start on Friday evening when most of the government computers are, were turned off. Once we have received intelligence, we have performed several actions immediately. On May 13th, it's, it's Saturday, we have sent the one cry alert and advisory to all government agencies via the government notice system. And on May 14th, is Sunday, the Department of Cybersecurity sent phone messages to all government IT supervisors at the same time, we also post the WannaCry alert information on the website. And also, we have sent the IP and URL list extracted from the malware analyzed results to GSN. GSN stands for Government Service Network. All Taiwan government use the GSN to block the government network accessing this malicious IP and URL. And sir, we have set up the dedicated section on the website to update the WannaCry listenware-related information. And on May 5th, this Monday, the government agency were fully informed and prepared to deal with listenware, thus minimize the potential damage. Uh, in summary, how can do uh, how can to prepare for the future attacks? I think the increase the cyber security awareness of the general public is the first priority. Current government has given analysis with we call TTOP3CC this mission to pre- pre- promote cyber security awareness to the general public. As for TTOP3CC, we will continuously promote cyber security awareness within the government agencies. We are working together to improve the overall cybersecurity capability of Taiwan. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up uh, the work of your organization. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more exactly about what your responsibilities are. Okay, thank you. Mm, let's, let me briefly introduce TITA Answered. Uh, TITA Answered stands for Taiwan National Computer Emergency Response Team and is also known as the NCCST, is supervised by the Department of Cybersecurity Executive UN. And TDANS is target to provide government agency cybersecurity-related technical services, such as before incident security protection, during incident responses and post-incident recoveries, 
And in Taiwan, there is another third we call PWCC, which provides cybersecurity services related to general public and the private sectors. And two thirds work together as a team and for a common goal of better and more secure cyber environment in Taiwan. That's my answer. So what are the most important steps that people should take? Uh, I, I think uh, first uh, they have to uh, update their window system. As I mentioned, many companies and general public are still using the Windows XP SP operating systems. And the Microsoft stopped update support for a long time. Moreover, uh, a lot of people do not check the system update regularly. So they have to system update or regularly don't ignore the update notice. All right, we have been speaking today to the director of Taiwan National CERT, Larry Wu. Larry Wu, thanks so much. Thank you, thank you. All right, we're going to leave that one behind and move on to our second topic for today. Moving into domestic politics, uh, Gavin, the KMT is holding its election for party leader tomorrow. It's had, and Saturday, May the 20th, the same day that Tsai Ing-wen is celebrating her first anniversary as head of state. Bit of a coincidence, that. Conspiracy theories <laughs> mm, abound, maybe in some quarters. Here, not so much, though. We're not big on conspiracies. Anyway, of course, we have a six-way race for the KMT election. We have the incumbent KMT chairman, Hong So Ju. We have former Vice President Udrani. We have former Taipei City Mayor Haolong Bim. We have former lawmaker Tina Pan. We have former KMT Vice Chairman Steve Jan. And we have Han Guo Yu, who used to be in charge of a Taipei City Agricultural Agency. There we go. So quite a crowded uh, race that this has become. A lot of names to remember. But uh, if you if you trust the polling, it seems like a lot of those names probably won't matter too much. It's kind of been narrowed down to maybe two or three. It's three. We have the incumbent KMT chairman, Hong So Ju. We have former Vice President Udini, and we have former Taipei Mayor Haolong Bim. They're, they're topped to win, basically. Their, their rankings in the support polls that have been carried out are roughly about the same, although Udini seems to be squeaking ahead in certain polls. So, uh, it's a big day. It's a big day for the KMT. Uh, Hong Shouju has been at the helm for uh, a bit of time now, been defining the party. Ross, what what are your thoughts on how this race could define the future of the party? Well, I think you, you used a key word, which is define. So, in, in this period since the KMT lost control of the legislature and the presidency in the January 2016 election and since uh, uh, one year, May 20th, when Tsai Ing-wen was inaugurated as president, uh, they're not really defined by much in the sense that the party, uh, because of so much infighting, uh, having a, only a small minority in the legislative event, other than their, their overriding view towards relations with China, they're not defining themselves on any other policy issue other than opposing for the sake of opposition, which is uh, common in Taiwan. It's what the DPP often did when they were in the minority. Uh, so we, we, we just don't hear what the KMT stands for or what their policy ideas are on 
any kind of economic or social issue. It, it, again, it's very often just opposing for the sake of opposing. That's not healthy for democracy. So putting aside their views on China, uh, there, there's still other issues that uh, the, the democracy and government processes, legislative debate, require an opposition party to provide a proper check on, on the majority and to provide alternative policy ideas. So whoever wins the election, if, if they want to have any hope of recapturing voter support, they're going to need to come up with good policies and, and move on from just opposing for the sake of opposing. Of course, they could be the loyal opposition. Uh, but uh, even in the context of opposition, they have to start defining themselves with policy ideas. Now, Jason, uh, just kind of looking at the flip side of that, so we have not heard a lot of mm-hmm. policy mm-hmm. opinions or strongly held mm-hmm. uh, ideological views. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing that probably is going to matter that you were talking about is uh, national identity and identity politics. Yeah, definitely. The um, front runner right now is uh, former Vice President Wu Duanyi, who is an ethnic Taiwanese. Um, the others... Front runner Hong Xiuzhu and also uh, Hao Longbing and the others were mostly viewed as the ethnic mainlanders. And it runs like a U.S. party convention. So uh, if there's no clear winner on May 20th, they'll go to a second round voting on that same day, party mm-hmm. convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been some pundits saying the other candidate might gang up against Wu Duanyi to prevent him. So they will maybe concentrate their vote on either Hong Xiuzhu or Hao Longbing who are front runner. So this might be the the uh, Taiwan's uh, politics, the identity, where they, there have been talks about, you know, KMT, whether they'll continue to be uh, a party held by the, the uh, mainlander, the, the people who used to hold on to power during the Chiang Kai-shek and uh, Jiang Jingguo regime, or will they go with the main trend of the politics in Taiwan in recent decades, I just go with more uh, the Taiwanese, uh, you know, uh, the ethnic uh, politics there. So mm. let's see how, what, what will happen then. I think there's a bit of fake news in, the, in that analysis simply because uh, Wu Donyi, despite or notwithstanding the fact that he's ethnically Taiwanese, his views on cross-strait relations are fairly consistent with with the KMT view. He's he's not saying let's declare a Republic of Taiwan tomorrow, junk the Constitution, junk the national flag. So, uh, when it comes to cross-strait relations and 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 things like the 1992 consensus whether or not there should be government government contact on the basis of the 1992 consensus, whether it's Wu Duanyi, Hong Xiuzhou, Ha Longbing. Uh, their views are probably the same on this issue. Uh, so, I, I again, I it's fun for uh, media such as the Taipei Times and the Liberty Times to bring up this issue because it creates consternation within the but, I mean, with the even, KMT. Even but, the, uh, but even if the policy is substantially the same, you know, if there is a perception that this is the person who's going to represent me and my identity, that could matter. I, again, I, I don't think that uh, whether it's Hong Xiuzhu or Ha Longbing or Wu Duanyi, uh, that they're looking to make an issue of this, right? Wu Duanyi is not running on a platform of vote for me, not the other people, because I was born in Taiwan or my family's been in Taiwan for 300 years. He's not running on that platform because— But it's implied. But, but there's no—no, no, I, I disagree. It's just not— I, I, 
structurally the the party has, has set it up so that the that you know that mainland ethnic mainlanders dominate the the dele- the voting delegates mm-hmm. obviously the huang fuxing the you know the veterans uh, you know the military veterans uh, group but also just generally across the board the voting membership of the KMT is heavily weighted toward mainlanders, especially northern ones based, you know, around Taipei and New Taipei City. And a lot of them, the, a lot of these people were the people who, who protested when Chen Shui-bin was president and when they looked at uh, Li Donghui and they looked at Wu Duanyi, a lot of them just think never again. Um, so there, there's, there's an institutional and an intentionally built-in institutional bias against anyone who's ethnically Taiwanese. So while Wu Duanyi is going out not saying anything, uh, although there have been, you know, there was that rumor just recently saying that, you know, he, he was saying to people that, well, if you want to reunify with China, well, why don't you just go to China? Uh, specifically, he was referring to, to Fujian. But, um, you know, that sort of rumor gained some traction because of that, uh, uh, you know, of that image. It's, it's not a, what he's saying or what policies he's espousing. This is sort of an almost visceral identity thing that, that goes back to deep cleavages into the history of the party. So I do think that this is actually quite central to, to the election. So when you have, uh, how, you know, when you have, uh, how long been and, um, who of course has the, uh, you know, has, has a lot of loyalty because of his father, Hao Po Tsuan, you know, the, the ex-premier and uh, uh, military head, uh, uh, pit, you know, pitted against uh, Hong Xiaozhu, who's also been something of a, and she's been a little bit more of an outlier on China issues uh, compared to the other two, being a little bit more, coming up with some more, uh, rather more creative formulations than the uh, 92 consensus. So between those two are split, could potentially split the mainlander vote, but the question is, you know, could Wu Duany get past 50%, as Jason alluded there? You know, there, there's going to probably be runoffs, and I think it's quite unlikely that he'll do that. So, uh, but that there is that dynamic of the party set up to vote around mainlanders, but there's a split between the, two, the top two. So how that's going to play out, I don't know, but... If J- Jason's right on this and Udoni doesn't uh, pass 50%, then p- presumably either Hao Longbin or uh, Hong Shouju will win it. All right. So here in studio, I see Jason nodding along and I see Ross uh, shaking his head rather vociferously. Uh, we do have to move on, but Ross, I'll give you the final words on this. Uh, 30 seconds. Well, the party doesn't... Uh discriminate or, or require people to state their ethnic uh, background as part of their membership. So to say that the party has has arranged its system to favor mainland voters, that, that really is just an inaccurate description of how the party operates. It, it really operates around uh, the policy idea. So if, if there are people who are ethnically Taiwanese but believe that uh, Taiwan and China should one day reunify or that Taiwan independence is not the correct option for Taiwan, and they're welcome to join the KMT. So I, I think I think Donovan really overstates that, that, that there's some kind of systemic process within the KMT that favors mainlanders who, uh, as we know, make up less than 15% of the population anyway. Yeah, but they make up the vast majority of the voting uh, membership of the KMT. Uh, and remember, there's members and there's voting members. And then, of course, the Huang Fuxing specifically is a, is a privileged group. They have, uh, they're actually considered separately from the rest of the membership. But one could be of any ethnic, ethnic background to be a member of Huang Fuxing. You don't have to be a mainlander to join the Huang Fuxing. <laughs> um, actually, 
uh, historically, pretty much that was the case. Um, I mean, obviously now, but th- these are the people who were active KMT members. They were almost uniformly. Uh, keep in mind that these are retired uh, military people, and when you look at when all these people and the generation, that when they joined the military and reached the officer level, which were, were which are the people we're looking at here, that was massively, uh, overwhelmingly mainlanders. Um, so yeah, it, there, it, there's a you know, and after uh, you know after uh, the Lee Dong Hui presidency, they 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 started reconfiguring a bit how the how the membership was chosen because they were afraid of of another Taiwanese taking taking control. I mean they. The, the the party is explicitly. I mean, it's the Chinese Nationalist Party. They're not. Uh, so they're you know, and, and particularly after what happened with Li Dunhui, they they're terrified. Uh, they, you know, there's a huge percentage of of the membership, and particularly the voting membership, is actively uh, opposed to the idea of another t- ethnic Taiwanese. Now, keep in mind, and the reason why I'm saying this is that not younger people, but keep in mind that the vast majority of the voting membership of the KMT are elderly. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm referring specifically to voting membership here. And I believe there's something like 475,000 members can vote tomorrow, Jason. Is it the figure? Yes, uh, but there's question about eligibility and the uh, the uh, uh, membership being signed up and, uh, under one candidate just with uh, like false names. And, you know, uh, so there's a problematic in that. Yeah, so a lot of uh, election shenanigans that have taken place, uh, but we'll just have to wait and see how tomorrow goes. And uh, we're going to meet a new important face for the KMT for uh, a a year or two to come. So uh, a lot of important stuff coming our way. Last up, though, before the break, we're going to move on. And the push to pass a law legalizing gay marriage stalled out last year. We haven't heard too much of anything about it this year. But a new avenue to legalization may be opening up. Next week, the Council of Grand Justices will rule on a petition brought by prominent gay rights advocate Chi Jia Wei and the Taipei City Government. So this is a case that have, we've kind of heard a little bit. It's been percolating in the background uh, for a while now. Ross, maybe you could fill us in on exactly what the court is being asked to decide here. Sure. The court is being asked to decide whether or not there's a constitutional right to, to gay marriage or to look at another way, whether, whether it is constitutional to restrict marriage to be between a man and a woman. As it is currently in the civil code. That's right. So uh, as in many countries around the world, uh, people who support marriage equality have, have pursued both a legislative remedy as well as a judicial remedy. So in this case, uh, it is very similar that people have gone to the constitutional court and say, uh, this is just a a very basic violation of of, of human rights that are broadly guaranteed under the Constitution. And so there's, uh, just just to get into what exactly in the Constitution it is that's being referred to here, there's uh, protections for equality are what's being appealed to. That's right. The the, the Constitution, like constitutions and democracies around the world and non-democracies as well, uh, makes reference to very broad rights. And and, uh, the LGBT community has a very strong argument to say that we're we're being denied the basic rights that – uh, other couples are are, are granted, uh, and and this is wrong, uh, and it, it's difficult to refute those arguments. Um, for it's difficult for the constitutional justices to refute that. Uh, I think they're in a very tough spot to say you don't have a constitutional right, given that uh, so many other courts around the world have recognized this right, uh, including the United States. Mm. Important though. Even if this decision does go the way that uh, gay rights advocates 
uh, are hoping to see that I, I, it's not like flipping a switch. There would still be some legislation. There would still be well. That more that steps. goes to that goes to the debate on the legislative track and the the concerns that were expressed by the government when they went to the constitutional court to argue against granting a right or, or recognizing that there's a constitutional right to gay marriage. It, it's the same argument that the government officials keep making, which. We've talked about before is not very convincing. They're saying, "Oh well, we can't do this because there's so many other laws that need to be changed." Uh, but but there's a very easy way to deal with this issue, which is uh, at the outset you you recognize that there's a right, and any laws and, and regulations that impact the rights of married couples uh, until those laws and regulations get rewritten or passed, uh, a revised version is passed in the legislature. You interpret it to include. Uh, same-sex couples. It's very simple, uh, but but government officials have been relying on this basically as as their escape from from having to actually confront this issue. So, it, it, if the constitutional court rules in the same way that they've done with other uh, highly sensitive, politically sensitive cases in the past, th- their typical way is to say, uh, we sort of kind of recognize that this needs to be done. So, legislature, deal with it kind of quickly. Mm. All right. So that's what that's we not likely to happen, though, is it? Dealing with it quickly. Well, that that was why we heard the facetious note in uh, Ross's voice right there. Oh, I missed that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin doesn't pick up on sarcasm somehow. Uh, so we uh, we do need to move to a break relatively soon. So I don't want to dwell on this topic too much, but I want to give uh, Jason and Donovan a chance to chime in real quick. So I'm going to give a minute to both of you. Uh, Jason, first, uh, maybe you could articulate uh, a little bit for us uh, your views on how this issue is uh, seen currently in Taiwan. It's still, you know, a fairly divided nation on this issue. Yeah, the uh, it's very divisive issue. Um, in fact, the DPP core constituents, a lot of southern southern Taiwan uh, rural population and also the uh, church groups, for example, the Taiwan Presbyterian Church, they have been very outspoken against it. But of course, the city folks and the younger people are uh, uh, progressive-minded. They are vote for it. But there is seem to be no middle ground. Now it's very, there's a lot of uh, uh, fighting or argument and I'm covering the news and there are demonstrations and counter demonstrations, uh, you know, in the past month and over the years. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it's very problematic for the ruling party. It, you go either way, you'll be angering <laughs> a very significant faction of your voter. Mm. So that's a problem. Donovan, let's toss things over to you. Uh, you were making that point before we even turned on these mics that this really could be uh, pose a lot of difficulties for the DPP and the DPP leadership. Yeah, uh, two quick points. One is I think that um, Taiwan is basically a sort of uh, sitting on pins and needles, uh, hoping uh, that the courts make the decision for the DPP. Uh, because politically, um, now, this is an interesting thing. A lot of people keep talking about how the DPP campaigned on this and Taiwan campaigned on it. And that's actually incorrect in spite of what most uh, news reports say. So, uh, what she actually did during the campaign is that she said she personally supported it. Now, that's distinct from the party platform or party policy. Even though the party used uh, the colors of, uh, of the rainbow flag in some of their uh, marketing, they never came out and said they supported it. Now, if you actually look at the breakdown of the legislators that are perceived to um, 
to support and not support both uh, some of the uh, anti-groups, and also Nathan Bado also uh, reiterated this recently, is that if you actually look at the DPP uh, legislators that, that are pretty clearly for or against, the ones that are almost almost uniformly against are the ones that were elected uh, that represent districts, and the ones that support are almost entirely party list, which are chosen by the party to represent the party in the legislature. So <clears throat> there's a there's a, a clear breakdown between uh, <clears throat> between legislators who actually have to face an electorate who are generally against this, and uh, you know, as Jason noted, particularly those that are influenced by the Presbyterian Church, which has a long history of the DPP. Um, <clears throat> so. So there's a lot of legislators really don't want to deal with this issue, uh, and Tsai Ing-wen has been kind of dodging the issue for quite a while uh, since she's been elected, uh, trying to find common ground, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think that she's hoping the courts will kind of make the decision, and I'm sure that a lot of legislators are, legislators are hoping that the courts will rule in favor so they can throw up their hands and say, well, it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And then they, they won't get, uh, their constituents won't be angry with them. Ah, an ode to accountability right there. <laughs> yes. Uh, Gavin, real quick, before we hit the break, there's another social issue that you've been following rather closely. Maybe uh, we can hit that real I quick. I was having following it closely. I happened to look at the front page of a newspaper this morning. And it said yesterday, Thursday, a judicial reform committee decided that it was working to remove adultery, to decriminalize adultery here in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And of course, this has been a, a sticky wicket and a big issue for many, many years, because, of course, common sense does prevail that why should adultery be a criminal offense? The logic, if you ask people that support adultery being a criminal offense, the, the logic here is that it protects wives with cheating spouses. So the idea is if your husband cheats on you, now you have some recourse to... I don't know, get, get justice. Gavin, what happens if we have marriage equality, but the, uh, the adultery law is not decriminalized yet? So will that, will that apply to same-sex couples as well? I have no idea. We'll have to wait and see, because it could take some time. goes back to the point that you were just making, that there's so many civil code uh, stipulations to, uh, to fix if uh, this ruling goes through. All right, so that's another, yet another social issue that Taiwan is grappling with currently. Uh, perhaps uh, so. This is this is part of the judicial reform. So this is just a proposal that came out uh, among many proposals in the judicial reform conference. Uh, so uh, we're going to have to see whether or not that makes any headway as well. Of course, it's uh, currently just a proposal, but yet another uh, social change that may be coming to Taiwan. We're going to leave all of those behind, though. We are coming up on a break. That's it for the first half. When we return. Will Taiwan's turn south run headlong into China's One Belt, One Road project? We'll discuss that. We'll also take a look at how cross-strait politics may impact Taipei's upcoming Universiad Games. And after the passing of one of Taiwan's most prominent entertainers, Zhu Guliang, we'll take a look back on the legend's storied career. All that and more when we return to Taiwan this week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Raz Feingold, Jason Pan, and Donovan Smith. This next story comes with a theme song, courtesy of China's hardworking propaganda teams.
Yes, Idai Ilu, or One Belt, One Road, is the name of a trillion-dollar project aiming to expand trade links between China and other countries in Asia, Europe, and Africa. To kick off the much-vaunted plan, Beijing held a two-day Belt and Road Forum over the weekend that reportedly saw over 20 heads of states in attendance, including Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkish President Recep Erdogan. For Taiwan, though, the real significant news that came out of this one was a joint statement issued by China and Vietnam. Part of that statement read, uh, Vietnam said that uh, they would pledge to persistently respect the One China Principle, support the peaceful development of cross-strait relations and China's unification clause, and resolutely oppose any Taiwanese independence activity in any form. So, uh, the way that this is being viewed here in Taiwan is that China is really closening its ties with Vietnam, and that if Taiwan is trying to close in ties with Vietnam and other countries in the region, this could really pose something of a, of a hurdle. And we did get some indication that this sort of a policy is no accident, as one unnamed Chinese official said that, indeed, uh, strengthening ties with Vietnam is a play to thwart the Go South policy. Because, of course, Taiwan does have strong trade ties with Vietnam. Which it had before the, the, the DPP government uh, announced this policy towards uh, Southeast Asia. Look, here, the, the, the key challenge for the South policy, whether it was the ASEAN countries or India, is that there needed to be reciprocation from those countries. And in the face of uh, business ties or political pressure from China, the, the question always was, would those countries jeopardize their relationship with China for the sake of a closer relationship, whether politically or, or economically, such as through free trade agreements, with Taiwan. We, we always knew that that was the key challenge with uh, President Tsai's policy. And, and now we're seeing um, you know, practically uh, that, that with the implementation that, that it does face these significant hurdles, uh, which really calls into doubt whether the policy could have any substantive success long term beyond more exchange students or, or a few more tourists visiting Taiwan. Of course, the government is also talking about India as well as one of its major targets. But, but, but again, that might be but, a little bit easier because actually India was uh, in notable absence at uh, this conference over the weekend. But, but again, Gavin, it's the same question. What, will India jeopardize its increasingly important business relationship with China for the sake of improved ties with Taiwan. It, 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 it's unknown, but, but the likelihood is low, regardless of whatever tensions India and China have over border security or uh, the demarcation of the border or India's uh, consternation at long-term Chinese support for Pakistan. Uh, notwithstanding all those bilateral tensions, would, would, would India do anything to raise China's ire uh, for the sake of having a closer relationship with Taiwan, when, when actually, like a lot of the ASEAN countries and India, uh, these countries are open to Taiwanese investment. So they welcome Taiwanese companies to come and invest in their countries. It doesn't take a new DPP policy to change how those countries perceive Taiwanese companies, which are welcome to come and invest in. They're treated the same there the way any other foreign company would be treated in, in ASEAN or India. Uh, so, I, again, I, I'm not sure what India would, would be looking to do uh, with Taiwan at the cost of uh, worse relations with China. Uh, India, by the way, uh, uh, has repeatedly and recently reiterated that it does not, uh, it, it does not recognize China's uh, one-China uh, a principle, 
uh, and, and it has no one China policy of its own. Uh, and it's reiterated that uh, several times and once again reiter- reiterated it recently. So they kind of use this issue uh, as kind of a bludgeon against China. Um, and so they're willing to at least take some risks uh, on behalf of Taiwan, partly to annoy China, I think, um, but also because they have their own territorial issues and they want uh, the only, and they've kind of laid down their marker saying, that the only way that we will accept the one China principle or one or, or come up with the one China policy is if uh, China recognizes our territorial claims, and of course China has uh, occupies some territory which India claims as its own. Um, now Vietnam is an interesting case. They're one of the more powerful countries that seem to be kind of in a zian that that does seem to have kind of seems to float both ways and it tends to sort of it, it, sometimes they cozy up to the US and then sometimes they cozy up to China and sometimes they seem to be more in ASEAN and sometimes they seem to be more closer to China they seem to sort of float whichever way they have or with whoever they happen to be meeting with at the time uh, countries like uh, Cambodia uh, those those countries are pretty much now, I think, client states of China on the historical mode. So I think it, it's a I think it's a complicated picture. Uh, so this week, with this news breaking, we saw a number of DPP legislators come out in support of the One South policy, basically defending it, saying that you know this this town is big enough for everybody. The Go South policy is cooperative. We can all work together. This uh, China's interests, Taiwan's interests not mutually mutually exclusive. Uh, this can work for everybody. Uh, Jason, what are your thoughts on that? I just want to drum up some support for Taiwan government's uh, this initiative. Mm-hmm. Officially, it's known as New South Bond Policy. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, it's got a budget of $4.1 billion uh, committed. And it's not just on trade, but whole host of uh, programs, initiatives, like tourism, culture, education, medical uh, people exchange and I want also uh, clear that Go South is not um, include uh, Southeast Asia but also uh, South Asia like India subcontinent but also there's New Zealand and Australia mm. so uh, but they did have a uh, put the top priority on the uh, the uh, nations that's being targeted on this new southbound policy those are India, Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Philippines and Thailand. These are the now targeted country for all these kind of uh, bilateral trade and investment and education and people's uh, uh, exchange. Wow, but in the last six months uh, alone, you know, China has announced numerous deals uh, with most of the countries that you mentioned, whether it's the Philippines. Uh, covering infrastructure. They've reached an accommodation on their territorial disputes in the South China Sea, uh, putting aside the policies of of the previous Philippines president. Uh, Malaysia has received a a massive financial bailout from China, and China is selling uh, weapons to Malaysia. And Thailand's military government has had an increasingly close relationship with China, again, both investment as well as military sales. Uh, So we're back to the core issue. Which of these countries are going to be responsive to overtures from Taiwan in any significant way? Well, we can actually, actually sort of sort of as a counterpoint to that, just recently uh, Vietnam 
has approved uh, a major new expansion by the Formosa Plastics Group uh, into into uh, their country. Uh, Indonesia, uh, Indonesia and Taiwan have just signed some bilateral deals recently. Um, <clears throat> there's been uh, some reason, some higher level exchanges, I think, with, with the Philippines recently, and then uh, much more activity on uh, people to people. Uh, communications there. Um, so, I mean, it's it's there. There's there's sort of there's a lot going on. In other words, it's not a hundred percent going one. You know, good news, bad news. There's you know, as Ross has noted here. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of things which are a little bit frightening for for Taiwan. But on the other on the other hand, there's still a lot of things going forward. Uh, whether it's in spite of China or or not is, I think, a, a really important question. All right. So, southbound policy, always kind of a dry subject. So, uh, just to bring up the spirits of our audience once again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring back that Edai Ilu song, just to bring us into the next topic. Up next, sports meet cross-strait politics as Taipei prepares for August's Universiade Games. The biennial international sporting event for collegiate athletes is touted by some as second to only the Olympics themselves in terms of size and significance. Just to give a sense of the scale, the Taipei Times reports that nearly 13,000 competitors from 142 countries took part in the last summer Universiade. That was held in Gwangju, South Korea back in 2015. Taipei has been preparing for its own event uh, for, well, it seems like, years and years and years now. Uh, and, of course, it's a great honor and very exciting for uh, everybody here. But this week, Gavin, we got a glimpse at some of the ways that politics may complicate the proceedings. Yes, flags. Once again, an international sporting event in Taiwan was covered by the flag controversy. That being, what flags can be flown at Universiad venues? There was actually the Taipei City Council had an interesting thing this week when one Taipei City Councillor came in with a shirt. He was wearing a shirt that basically said Chinese Taipei. He stood at his desk in front of the mayor and said, can I wear this T-shirt into the stadium? To which the mayor of Taipei, Kerwin Jur, nodded and said, that's OK by me. Then he took that shirt off and he was wearing another polo shirt underneath. It looked exactly the same as the white polo shirt, only it was red and it had the word Taiwan emblazoned right across the middle of it. He then turned round to the mayor and said, can I wear this into the stadium? To which the mayor didn't really say anything and couldn't really say anything. But what was more interesting was a female city councillor. She got up and she was adorned in a dress that was designed like the ROC flag. And her point was, can I wear this into the stadium? To which the mayor went, hmm. And she turned around and said, wittily, I won't be taking it off for you here, though. Hmm. Very witty. Very witty. So uh, a, a little bit of a little bit of witticisms right there. Uh, it seems so. So Kerr said basically. Kerr said basically, uh, we'll have to adhere to the uh, International Olympic Committee regulations on this, meaning that the only flags that can be flown in the stadiums are ROC national flags, and of course the Chinese Taipei 
official flag for sporting events. There's also another flag they mentioned called the Chinese Taipei University Sports Federation flag, which I'm not sure what that looks like. So technically, fans of sports can fly three flags in the university ad venues. As I said, the national flag, the Olympic flag, and this Chinese Taipei University Sports Federation flag. All right. Green Taiwan flags, you know, the green and white one. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the green slides down the side, yep. the white slide in the middle, and the green island in the, man, in the middle. Mm-hmm. That's banned, as always is at sporting events. Okay. So uh, be careful and what also, flags you also, bring. Also, you can't bring in big flags. Because if you do bring a flag, it can't be greater than two meters in length and one meter in width. Over the many decades I've been covering sports events with Gavin uh, in the past, this uh, waving a flag, ROC flag or the Taiwan independence flag, as uh, Gavin referred to, has been a very sore point for the uh, Taiwan sports fans. A lot of international matches, uh, people ban and people still insist bringing on these uh, ROC flags and, you know, uh, Taiwan independence flags. Uh, it, it's funny that waving a ROC flag uh, sort of uh, is supported by both the green and the blues. But in recent years, the uh, Taiwanese uh, independence groups are more vocal and they are really sticking out to uh, you know make that point. And one of the biggest issues was during the international football matches or the soccer. They just have a big... Uh, Big slogan banner saying "All hail Formosa." They did not even say Taiwan, but the soccer official asked them to come down, and they really uh, protested. Uh, basically, a lot of uh, uh, sports fans and Taiwanese uh, independent supporter they are saying, "This is a freedom of expression. Who cares uh, what we bring? I could uh, bring flags or slogans or whatever my." Happened. My T-shirt says uh, you, the game official or whatever international uh, all these uh, arbitrator has no jurisdiction over my freedom of expression. I pay the ticket in the audience seat, so that's. I also kind of agree with that. So, anyway. what's interesting is that lots of sports events here. People do unfurl flags that they're not technically allowed to unfurl, and I think every sporting event I've been to here at any stadium. I've seen the police be marched into the stadium, be marched up to the people waving the errant flag, and have confiscated the errant flag from the people. Well, the the, the fact is, as, as you identify, Gavin, is that the global organizations that uh, sponsor these or organize these, these kinds of sporting events have regulations on this issue. It's not something directed at Taiwan per se. So the same would apply in other places around the world where there are similar disputes. For example, uh, you come from the UK. What if uh, uh, Irish nationalists wanted to bring a flag supporting Irish nationalism uh, into a sporting event? Depending the, on the soccer team. Well, uh, yeah, but, 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 some but, teams, but, you'd get away with it. And some Celtic, places you might get killed. No but, but, Rangers who die. But exactly. But but the the point is is that uh, the, these are global rules, and it's meant to uh, de de escalate political tensions in the realm of sports. And there's actually some good logic to that. But but there's some very practical solutions to these issues. One, uh, given the sensitivities in Taiwan, maybe Taiwan just shouldn't even bid for these events because it creates so much tension here in Taiwan. And now we're wasting time talking about this. Or uh, the, the the city government filling time. We're filling time talking about this. We're yeah. waving. Time. There you go. But 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 more practically, uh, uh, given how important these issues are to people in Taiwan, and they want to uh, uh, take this opportunity when there will be international attention on Taiwan, international media, foreign visitors uh, for for the university games, uh, there hopefully will be an appropriate, uh, prominent, 
place where people can fly these flags close to the sporting venue, and that will also not violate the rules of the international organizations. But there, it would have been great when Marico was being quizzed, right, if his team had prepared and said, well, you know, we got these stupid rules about what flags you can bring into the venue. But let me tell you, we've set up a spot right across the street, which is outside the venue, and uh, we're not saying you know we're for or against it, but if people want to go wave whatever flag they want to wave, it's right there across the street. Going back to the university, Ed, of course, the flag issue, if they if people do get into the stadiums and wave pro Taiwan flags, they'll have no China or they'll have very few Chinese athletes to be waving these flags at, of course, because China isn't sending any team, a team per se, to the games. That's the announcement that we got this week, yes. Yeah, a great line, great line. Apparently Beijing turned around and said we won't be sending in we won't be sending a team to the university ad, but individual athletes can go. But we, but again it, we if if the flags are unfurled, uh, those individual Chinese athletes will probably make a big scene and, and storm out. And, and again, that, that, that would be getting us away from what, what the nature of a sporting event. It would be an unfortunate outcome. Yeah, Beijing turnaround didn't say it was actually boycotting the university ad. It said the university ad in Taiwan coincides with our national games. We were just busy that day. <laughs> yeah. It just, just busy this thing came next, up. The next three weeks, we're just busy. That exact yeah, period, period of time. Yeah. We just happened to... Uh, how did that get there? How did that sporting event get there? I have no idea. Uh, Jason, do you have any closing thoughts you want to close this segment out on? Being the sports guy for the Taipei Times? Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to cover the uh, the uh, university game in the coming up uh, summer. I think in August. Uh, there will be Taiwan independent group supporter. They already are planning to uh, make protests. And uh, Taipei City government has designated zone outside. But the uh, the group, they say, oh, we're going to go inside. We pay tickets, and uh, this is our freedom of speech. And uh, we want to show that the world, we are not Chinese Taipei, we are Taiwanese people, and we are the, the country is called Taiwan. That's what they are espousing, that, the kind of view, and they are very strong uh, to uh, push that, that stance uh, at international game because they see it's a... Uh, it's a good forum uh, to be seen to uh, saying, hey, we are Taiwan, we are Taiwanese. So they're going to push that envelope in the, in, at the games uh, this summer. All right. So political storms are brewing. We're going to move on, though, to our last story for today. That is the theme song. For a show hosted by Zhu Guliang, the subject of our final topic today. Zhu Guliang was a titan of entertainment in Taiwan for about a quarter century. Uh, he sadly passed away this Monday. And folks knew that he was sick, although, Gavin, I think a, a lot of folks were expecting him to hang on for a little bit longer. So this uh, this death did come as something of a surprise. Well, he died on Monday, Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, the fu- the in- interesting, funny, ironic, let's say, the Friday before last, one of his friends was actually forced to make a press release saying that he hadn't died. Mm. <laughs> I mean, of course, these are comedians we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, but one of his friends and his family did come out three, two days before he died to say he hadn't died. But then he died on Monday morning. He was age 70. And, of course, it's a great loss to Taiwan's entertainment industry because, of course, Jude Gerliang, with his sort of potty mouth, his sort of pot haircut... And his persona... <laughs> bowl cut. Bowl cut, I think, is, is the term. Is it a bowl, bowl cut? It, it's a bowl cut. A bowl cut. A pot cut. 
I don't know what you call it where you're from. Uh, the rest of the world. Which calls kind it of a pot bowl. are you referring to? <laughs> oh, a bowl cut. Anyway, anyway, his potty mouth and his bowl cut haircut, and of course his very outgoing and bubbly persona. He was will be greatly missed, as the Apple Daily wrote on its front page: "Entertainer of a generation, mourned by a generation." Mm. So uh, obviously, Jugaliang rose to prominence in the eighties. And KTV songs. He rose to prominence basically doing a cabaret, doing I'm doing KTV type songs. So he'd sing a KTV song, then these got released mm. on like VHS videos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are, you, you hit the key points, right? I have to keep in mind the, the era where uh, you know, previously television was was limited, uh, the programming was limited, the number of stations was limited, and and as uh, TVs became more affordable and there were more broadcast air stations and real government restrictions on the use of the Taiwanese dialect uh, were relaxed uh, with the end of the martial law era. Uh, there was a demand for content, you know, just like we're seeing today with demand for content o- over Internet and other uh, mm-hmm. online applications. Um, and, and Zhuge Liang was, was at the forefront of that that period as, as far as providing new entertainment. And, and, and as you said, in Taiwanese. In Taiwanese. He came from Kaohsiung. He became yeah. a cabaret leader, all in Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he managed to get away with continuing to speak in Taiwanese when he yep. came to Taipei and became mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. basically island-wide famous, shall we say. When he became the host of variety shows. Variety shows, yeah, and yeah. KTV type of things, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, of course, he was also a, a well-known gambler, shall we say. Um, he got into troubling for gambling quite a few yeah. times. He was actually shot, I believe, in about 1988 by gangsters because of a debt. Mm. He then got into more debt with gangsters. This is what I meant when I said storied career. <laughs> Lots of good stories. He disappeared for 10 years. Yeah. And then they re- he, he reappeared again in about, what was it, tw- 20... 2011, 2012? 2012. 2009 is what I read, but oh, yeah. Right, 2009. He reappeared in 2009, 2010, 2011. But, and everyone went, wow, he's back. Where's he been? And it transpired that he'd basically been in hiding mm-hmm. because of this one billion NT gambling debt he managed to rack up to some dubious people. Yeah. So and and then since he came back, uh, he's been more in the realm of movies. He's done a number of uh, really prominent movies over the last couple of years. Well, since he came back, he sort of his rather coarse humor disappeared. <laughs> he's, he's, he's cleaned up. He, he cleaned up a bit, and he became more of an all-round. Everyone can like him. You can sit there with your children and your grandmother, and they won't be offended. Type of entertainers. He cleaned up a little bit while he was in hiding. <laughs> so yeah, he came out of that whole dance hall culture. Yep. You know, the gangster-run dance halls. Uh, which all you know, all the current nightlife laws, the Bada Hangya laws, are all based on, and it was a real, uh, you know, real sort of. They're, they're usually they have prostitutes in the crowd, and uh, so you know, back in the day when they would be drinking the the you know the the exo cognac, you know, gambe with mm-hmm. the, the bottles, and mm-hmm. he came out of that whole era with all the gambling and the prostitutes and the mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the whole gangs that whole gangster scene. Right, so... And he was diagnosed with colon cancer, mm-hmm. terminal colon cancer in 2014. Which right. also helped accelerate a reconciliation with his daughter, daughter who, who's a prominent a prominent entertainer, yeah. uh, and they, they had a very public, uh, long-running, many years uh, family disagreement where, where they really didn't get along, and, and it was only in the last few years as he became more ill that they reconciled, which also played out in the public. So not only did he have his his amazing comeback, 
uh, and become prominent as an entertainer again. But he also had this reconciliation, which made for for good media. And uh, of course, she's very very sad, and, and um, you know, she thanked the public for their condolences and immediately got on a plane for an overseas concert. Mm. Okay, all right. Important detail. Important yeah. detail. So okay, so I think that that lays out pretty well the nuts and bolts of Drew Guilliang's uh, career. Let's turn things over now to uh, Jason, and maybe you can just give us a sense of uh, the mm. significance of Drew Guilliang okay. uh, in you know in, yeah. in, in in the context of the last century right. of Taiwan history. Yeah, this um well two major point is that he really to Taiwanese is king of comedy and uh, really Mister Entertainment. He started in nineteen. 80s live cabaret shows real like variety in the theaters and and then he went over all the major medium like vhs uh, videotape era he also then when you tv movies and also you know a lot of these shows and he really represented that figure in, in which how taiwanese entertainment has evolved but because of the gambling it also gives a lot of outsider who doesn't understand how Taiwanese, uh, you know, this industry, a lot of problems gambling and the uh, gangster, uh, you know, who were controlling a lot of the theaters and uh, uh, entertainment industry. Mm. But most importantly to Taiwanese people, his rise popularity during the 1980s when Taiwan is still very repressed, it's tail end of the uh, Taiwan martial law era. In those days, Taiwan was only entertainment was, well, you know, the real, like, say, uh, operas. And the TV and radio are very strictly controlled by the KMT, the censors. And TV is only the old, the so-called old three TV station, Zhong Si, Hua Si, Tai Si. And on those TV and radios, you only allow mostly Mandarin Chinese. But Zhu Ge Liang, he's speaking Taiwanese, using Taiwanese comedy, and he pushed that envelope because a lot of things he would say that, you know, uh, he, he he tried to get the censor. It was a lot of it was a live show, so uh, it, it's very hard to stop him. But he appealed to that uh, Taiwanese people in a lot of, you know, central, southern Taiwan to, to tell the truth in in, in uh, education and more intellectual circle, we say, in Taipei. They say, ah, that's very lowbrow humor. It's very earthy and coarse. Mm. But Taiwanese people think it's hilarious because he played, he, a lot of it's uh, about, you know, as uh, Gavin said, about, you know, uh, sexual innu- innuendos and bodily functions. A lot of things are taboo subject under the KMT regime in those era. Mm. Of course, that era, you, you cannot go back because now Taiwan's open society. But to Taiwanese people, he was really the, the first to, push that envelope and people love him for that because his comedy appealed to Taiwanese people that Taiwanese culture and also he brought a lot of the grassroots uh, Taiwanese you know like the temple culture you know the people the guy going to uh, you know this uh, deity medium and a lot of that that kind of temple celebration and uh, what people do in the rural rural village era uh, era, that's what Taiwanese people do in the folk uh, folk rituals and he bring that to the mass media. So uh, that's one of the things, you know, he's still held in high popularity, you know, even after all these years. Mm. Uh, Donovan, anything you have to add to that? I have a million and one memories with, with him, you know, his shows and, 
years ago, if you look at the historical movies that they make now, they, they, they don't get, one thing they never quite get right is they used to have all these um, posters up on the walls. You know, and you just go down the street and the walls would be covered with all these, these posters um, for the, you know, these variety shows at the dance halls mm-hmm. and the cabaret shows. And half of them would be these, like, barely, you know, these scantily clad women. And it seemed like the other half were Zhuge Liang. I mean, obviously it wasn't, you know, but they were the ones that stood out with his wearing the, the suits with the short pants, uh, you know, and his, and his famous haircut. And that was one of the very first things that really jumped out at me when I came here. It was the, just everywhere, these ratty-looking posters covering the walls everywhere. And a, a really high percentage of them were Zhuge Liang and scantily clad women. And they would, like, paint, put one over another, over another. So it was like there was this thick coating on all the walls everywhere of these posters. And they, they eventually got rid of them. But it was a real... Uh, it's something that most people forget now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he was everywhere at the time, yeah. even more than, say, Janet is now. One more is that uh, Zhuge Liang's popularity in the uh, uh, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, is that his videotape are being shown in a lot of tour buses yeah. and a lot of uh, local traveling mode because in those yeah. paths, the transportation wasn't now open. So you have all these so-called yejiche, wild yeah. chicken buses, and they will show Zhuge Liang videotape <laughs> and the tour buses. And this is outside of Taipei. I, I was doing a lot of traveling in the 90s uh, throughout Taiwan. So I'm sure, yeah, Donovan, you have a lot of good memory yeah, about this. <laughs> I took a lot of those there wild nothing, chicken buses, there was yeah. There worse than being on a chicken bus from Taipei to Taichung and sitting there. And you, all you can listen to is Ju Gerliang singing very loudly for two hours. Yeah. But a lot of jokes. A lot of Taiwanese uh, folks just enjoy laughing. <laughs> I'm sure Gavin was tickled pink by that experience. Um uh, Jason, I mean, would you say, do you think it's too much to say that Zhu Guliang was part of the story of Taiwan developing its own national identity over the last 25 years or so? Was he, was he a part of that cultural shift? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Because tail end of uh, martial law in the 90s, there was a lot of street protest. It became a badge of honor for a, say, street protest democracy activist to say, hey, I, I know Zhu Guliang. I'm with the Taiwanese, I'm with the Taiwanese culture. A lot mm. of that time, uh, Zhu Geliang listening or enjoy his comedy was seem subversive. I, that is anti-establishment. We're gonna overthrow this KMT regime. But in those days, KMT they still like you know they'll bang you on the head with the, you know truncheons and police comes out you know protest. It's still you know martial law, but it becomes that kind of subversive uh, action to you know say hey Zhuge Liang yeah Taiwanese. So a lot of uh, even a lot of uh, young people they are through Zhuge Liang they learn about Taiwanese people, Taiwanese culture, Taiwanese folk uh, way of doing things, and uh, so that that was quite, very significant in terms of culture and Taiwan national identity. Part of that movement, yeah. Mm. All right, so that was an entertainment story that we just got. So today, uh, we're actually not going to have a podcast bonus story, meaning that we are rounding out the show right there. All right, we're going to have to leave it for today. That is it for the show. Please do join us again next time. Time when this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, wherever fine podcasts are found. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Goodbye. 
joined also by Donovan Smith. Thank you, Donovan. Yeah, have a great weekend, everyone. Also joined by Ross Feingold. Thank you, Ross. Good night. And by Jason Pan. Thank you, Jason. Good night, Wanan. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tight, boy.